Welcome to the Rural Woman Podcast, a platform for women in agriculture, ranching, homesteading, and more to share their stories. I'm your host, Caitlin Dubin. Hey guys, welcome to this special Sunday episode of the Rural Woman Podcast. As you guys know, new episodes of the show typically release on Fridays, but as you may have seen on social media this week, I've been a bit under the weather. My husband and I returned home from a trip to the U.S. on Monday and headed straight to self-isolation as recommended. And on Tuesday morning, I woke up with a terrible head cold, which I have been monitoring and making sure that it is just that. So with all of that being said and between being sick and stressed of what's going on in the world, I can honestly say that my physical and my mental health definitely took a beating this week. But I am happy to report that I am feeling better in both regards. And I just want to thank you guys for your love and understanding. I am happy to be back on the air this morning with my new recording studio, aka my laptop on a box in my bed, which actually is quite comfortable. And I am considering using this as a method from now on. (laughs) On this week's episode of the Rural Woman podcast, you'll hear from Kate Estrade. Kate runs Local Cooling Farms, a regenerative pasture-based farm and Laughing Buddha Nursery, an organic gardening shop turned local food store with her husband, Grant. I touched base with Kate yesterday to see how her and Grant were holding up. She, like many others, are seeing major increases on their sales direct from their farm and their farm store. I just want to say thank you to Kate, Grant, and all of the other farms, ranches, greenhouses, homesteads, etc. that are helping keep everyone fed during this stressful time. We couldn't do it without you. So, Typically, I would now say, let's go over the review of the week. So instead of reading you a review this week, I thought I would take a minute to tell you about the Rural Woman Coffee Chat that I hosted yesterday instead. I had a group of women from all over Canada and the US come together on Zoom, which for those of you who don't know, is a video conferencing app. We came together to share our stories over a cup of coffee. We shared stories about how we've been holding up and managing our stresses. We shared some laughs and some of us even showed off our adorable new lambs. Thank you for that, Kara. I'm looking at hosting more of these coffee dates via Zoom over the next few weeks. So make sure you check in on Facebook and Instagram to see when the next one will be. And I hope that I can see you there. Honestly, it really lifted my spirits yesterday, and I'm so thankful for these women coming together and chatting with me and others. Now more than ever, I think it's so important to be in community with one another, and this is just one way that I can continue to help women in egg not feel so alone. So without further ado, my friends, let's get to this week's episode with Kate. Hi, Kate. How are you? I'm great. How are you, Caitlin? I am doing so good. Thank you so much for joining me on the Rural Woman podcast today. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited. I am literally so excited (laughs) to talk to you. I 
am fangirling a little bit when it comes to you (laughs) and your farm. So for my listeners who are unfamiliar with you, tell us a little bit about who you are and where you're from. Awesome. So I'm Kate. My husband, Grant, and I have a small, diversified livestock operation about 65 miles north of New Orleans. I'm actually from Wisconsin originally. And while I grew up in a rural area surrounded by row crops and dairies, and my parents had a big vegetable garden every year, and we composted and went to the farmer's market, I never would have imagined pursuing farming as a actual vocation or profession. So I, and how I got there, (laughs) kind of a roundabout way, but I studied journalism in college and I had great reporting internships and thought I would be a newspaper magazine reporter. But I decided to do an AmeriCorps service program after I graduated college. And before the program started and during it, I kind of picked up a couple books about our food system and sustainable agriculture and just, it totally spoke to me of being able to, you know, sort of open my eyes to the food system. And while food was always important in my family, and my mom is a great cook and loved to have people over. And of course we had the garden and everything. Beyond that, I never really thought about where my food came from. So it kind of opened my eyes in that sense. And then the intersection of sustainable regenerative ag with environmental health and you know, the humane treatment of animals and then human health was like, wow, I didn't know, you know, all those things kind of speak to me and they all kind of combine into something really cool. So I did the AmeriCorps program. I dragged my team. It was a team-based program where you have five different projects over the course of a year and drive around in a government vehicle around the country with your, you know, it was like the real world with service, basically that MTV show back, back in the day. So all of our projects that we weren't assigned, I would drag them to like urban farms for our volunteer days. And so I kind of thought like after the program, maybe I would volunteer or intern really on a farm somewhere like in Vermont. But then once our team got to New Orleans, I got very sucked into New Orleans, both the amazing culture of it And then this was three and a half years after Hurricane Katrina, and there was still so much work to be done. It was like kind of astounding, like in an American city, like how many people weren't home, how much destruction was still really evident. So I kind of thought, well, if these people who started this organization can put their whole lives on hold to do this, like certainly I could put the farming ideas on hold for like at least another year. So I signed up to do another year of service in um, a more office, like fundraising and marketing role. And I also thought like, you know, places like Vermont or Washington state were kind of like the Mecca of urban or of the local food movement farm to table and new Orleans, despite having a year round growing season and this like deep food history and culture. I mean, people really care about food here did not, I mean, it would not be what you would call a leader in the farm to table movement. And of course, some of that had to do with the storm and everything, but I also sort of thought I'm going to be doing this work, but maybe on the side or after it's over, like I could stand to make more of a difference here, given that it's not like on the cutting edge of sustainable farming and local food sourcing. So I did my year of service. I got very sucked into my job and was working too much and had a friend that went to my now husband's gardening store, Laughing Buddha Nursery. And she said, you know, you really need an outlet. You light up when you talk about gardening. So like, you really need to go to this place and get some plants and also talk to the guy. He's really cool. (laughs) So I went there like dutifully following my friend Julia's advice and bought some worms for my compost, my apartment compost bin, truly romantic and like some herbs. 
And um, then I kept going there because we were starting a garden with my work. And um, Grant and I started dating. And um, the rest kind of unfolded from there. So he already had the store. And then I ended up kind of staying on the nonprofit fundraising path for about eight years total, I guess. And the same year that we met, so the gardening store at the time was pest, organic pest control soil that he was composting and producing, you know, organic, other organic fertilizers and stuff like that, just to help people grow vegetables. And a large scale sand and aggregate company had approached him about launching a soil and composting division of their company. So he did that. I continued doing nonprofits and then I felt kind of good having my hand in gardening. At least we grew a lot of vegetables and stuff for ourselves. And he eventually sold the shares of the company five years later. We had bought the land that is now the farm in 2014, kind of thinking like, we'll have a homestead someday, or we'll just have country property and still live in the city, like not really knowing what we would do with it. And then once he sold the shares of the company, he always kept the store separate, but it was like, what am I going to do now? Like, maybe we'll farm. So one thing led to another. And I guess the other thing is we had played around with egg more him than me with animals. He had had laying hens in the yard of the garden store and also this small breed of heritage pigs, American guinea hogs. And so I guess the real trigger to like make the land more of a farm sooner rather than later was we had sold the breeding stock of the pigs to a friend, maybe like 2011 or 12 or something. And then once we bought the land, he was like, do you want your pigs back? Like I can just buy piglets from the auction or wherever and raise them up for myself. Like I don't need to be dealing with farrowing and breeding. And so I was like, well, yeah, yeah, I'll take the pigs back and set up fencing for them. And at this point we weren't living there and he would just go up every other day and check on them, make sure the fence was good, fed and watered. And then that led to, well, maybe we should have chickens again and see what breed would do well with aerial predation, especially with us not being there every day. And you're going to like this part, the real, like the third species that really kicked it off was then half of the property is wooded and completely overgrown thick with mosquitoes, like not managed in years, no sunlight hitting the ground, you know, not a like very good functioning ecosystem. And so to get it back to more silvopasture health, we needed to be clearing like the undergrowth and the invasive Chinese privet. And so who did we have to task but goats? So we got trial, like little pilot herd of goats to eat the, you know, saplings that we cut down and the branches and then help get them in there once laneways were cleared to like clear the undergrowth. So it was like pigs, chickens, goats, and all of a sudden we have a farm. <laughs> and meanwhile, my last job before I quit to join the businesses was fundraising for a major private university here. So I was traveling every other week. And I just found myself so pulled to the farm. Like, I don't want to be in airplanes going to New York and D.C. Like, I want to be fing. So we had this timeline that just kept accelerating. Like, maybe I'll quit my job in a year or two years. And then eventually it was just like, tomorrow. I'm going tomorrow. And so that was twenty the August of 2016. And it's really taken off since we've both been full-time since then. And now my listeners know why fangirl over you so much. <laughs> um, and it was so long. Like I just, yeah, just kind of went off there. But That's hopefully that accomplished awesome. introduction. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and oh. some of the background. Yes. No, it's so cool. I love that you, I think, obviously, I feel like you were born to do this, like to hear that 
your parents had the big garden and to compost and that kind of stuff. Like back in the day and age yeah. when growing up, it's just like, 80s, yeah. I, right. I knew when I was growing up, my parents didn't do any of that. Like, I think my mom had a garden one summer and then like <laughs> put grass on it the next summer because the cat just used it as a litter box. Like, I yeah. Just and it's feel- funny, like, I need to dig into this. They help at the farm so much. They're the absolute best. But like, it wasn't like they were like raging hippies either. It was just like what they did. And then when I went to college, I was kind of like, wait, you have to throw coffee grounds in the trash and eggshells? Like, why would you do that? So it really was like very ingrained in me. And then the fact that Grant, you know, a big part of his business when we met was composting, like that kind of felt a little faded too. Like not that many people can get as enthused about composting as we can, I think. (laughs) So yeah, I think well, compost people know compost people, right? Like I am married to a compost person. So, and I didn't start composting until I moved out to this farm. And now I have my little bucket on the counter and everything yep. I can throw in there is thrown in there. And I know when my parents come out to the farm and they go to like scrape their plates, I'm like, well, just go put that in the compost bin. And they're like, they're like oh why? gosh, you're right. Like, why would we do this? But that is so cool. Yeah. I think your parents secretly wanted you to grow up to be a farmer so Maybe. they could have their own yeah. little farm. So, (laughs) which is not a bad thing. So (laughs) Grant had animals at the farm store, but did he grow up in agriculture or was this a new thing for him? He didn't either. He grew up in the suburbs of New Orleans, actually about a mile from where the store is. And he's just classics. I mean, it was less developed than it is now. So he does tell stories of like, like wooded area by the lake, like wild west for little boys to like run around and, you know, be crazy. He actually has like a funny story too. He had, he had pet snakes as a teenager and he worked at a pet store and you know, like this is still kind of weird to me in general, but you like, you feed snakes like rodents. So he was like, well, maybe I could raise my own rodents instead of buying them from the pet store. So he always had that entrepreneurial streak and he was very interested in like, nutrient cycling. So he started raising the rodents and then composting the manure for the vegetable garden that he dug up in his parents' suburban yard. And so I think like for him, the waste thing was always really interesting of like nature's waste is actually like a huge asset of just in the sense of like, isn't that cool that I could like get something useful out of something that most people think is waste. And then he started selling extra rodents to the pet store. So it's like he earned a wage from them, but he also at 15 or 16, you know, was like selling them a product. And he's like, "Hmm, I think I like this more than being a wage earner my whole life. So he went to college for sociology and philosophy. He um, he wanted to do biology because he was always you know, interested in nature. And, but it was very, the university he went to is very like pre-med focused. So he's like, it's not going to be as useful. And he thought learning how to communicate and how humans work is pretty important in business and life. So, so he started the store when he was 24. So it was like, you know, he used the rest of his college money and just knew he wanted to be in business for himself. And the organic gardening thing. It was kind of the same rationale that I had six, seven years later of like New Orleans isn't a leader in this realm. There is no one really offering like organic gardening stuff. So maybe that's my little niche. But he always like he loves growing vegetables and stuff, but he always had an interest in the animal side of it too. So that's why he got the guinea hogs for the yard of the store of like I can have little mini farms like in the suburbs because they don't need as much space and and they just don't get nearly as big as like the breeds of hogs that we have now. So yeah. 
And I also like, we only had cats growing up. Like we never even had dogs. I wouldn't consider myself like an animal lover. Like I think there's people that in middle school and high school, like just identify, that's a huge part of their identity. But I so am, like I love animals. And I think it's way more, it's just for me, like it would be cool to be growing vegetables, but the animals, their personalities and their interaction with soil health and to me, it's just so much more dynamic and I, I love them. So I'm glad we like both kind of were geared toward that just naturally. And then I guess initially, I don't even think I knew that. I think what I did know is there were people trying out the produce growing in our region. There were fewer people trying to do like humane, rotationally grazed meat. And so there seemed like there was a dirt in the market anyway. So it was like a, you know, multifaceted decision in that sense, but. That's very cool. And from what I know of you online, I can completely tell that you're an animal lover because it just (laughs) resonates from you every single day. And I love it. I know how I talk to them and stuff. They're just, (laughs) goats and pigs in particular are very smart. Like they behave with a lot of intention, you know, whereas even the cattle, not as much. Like they're sort of like, oh, let's go over here and like try this. And the goats and like thinking circles around me, like, or the pigs, like, you know, so, so you can't help but like really respect them of like realizing how smart they are and, you know, affectionate and all of that. So absolutely. And there's definitely days that it's good that they're so smart. And then there's days <laughs> that it is not so good. They are so smart. <laughs> yeah, I always joke that if our pig herd queen Olivia and our goat herd queen Lemon like teamed up, like we would be in trouble. Like they, it'd be like Animal Farm. They would like we would be gone, and they would be running the farm, <laughs> however they please. <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, what are all of the animals that you have on your farm? So, our biggest enterprises are pork, a pigs for pork. And we have a farrow to finish operation in that we have the breeding stock and then raise them from birth to harvest. And then a breeding herd of goats also. And both of those things are, I mean, because there wasn't anyone else doing it really that we could buy acres from, like with small acreage in a lot of ways, like not dealing with the breeding would be easier, but to have like the quality of the genes that we have and be able to control all those factors and have like a regular supply. We needed to do that. And then whereas cattle, which we got into later, even this heritage breed called Piney Woods cattle, there's many people to choose from that we can buy the steers from. So we don't have to breed them. And so the pork is the biggest enterprise and also laying hens, like lots and lots of laying hens for eggs. And then small herd of breeding goats and cattle. And then we also... We've already kind of, you know, reached the limits on some of the species of like how much we can produce and sell for our acreage, like for the beef, like we're a little bit maxed out right now. But there's a lot of other local farmers doing things like especially beef, less so than than cattle, or goats or pigs. So we also resell other farm stuff through Laughing Buddha Nursery, which turned into we still do the organic gardening supplies, but has become our food store too (laughs) and our outlet for selling all of our stuff. And then we do, what else? We have rabbits and and ducks. We have some ducks in the laying flock too. We used to keep them separate, but they're with the uh, chickens now. So very cool. If you've been listening to the Real Woman podcast, then you've heard me talk all about my favorite natural deodorant from KL Skin Naturals. But did you know that they're more than just a deodorant company? My friend Leah has amazing foot butters, yummy lip balms, dreamy skin creams, and has recently introduced brand new handmade soaps into the mix. 
clean and simple. These handmade bars of soap lather richly and leave skin feeling super soft. Pure kaolin clay and activated charcoal gently cleanse away toxins. And the rustic hand-cut bars are long-lasting and smell amazing. So head on over to klskindeodorant.com and use promo code WILDROSE10 to save 10% off your next order. So I went on and did my research on your Instagram (laughs) page. And I really liked in your bio, basically, if you look at your bio, you know what Local Coolings Farm is all about. First of all, that you're both first-generation farmers. Next, regenerative egg and soil health. Raising livestock with dignity and growing local food. So I kind of want to unpack each and every one of them. We've already talked about how you guys are very cool first-generation farmers. And (laughs) now I wanted to get into the regenerative egg and soil health. So tell us about some of the practices that you do to promote regenerative egg and healthy cells on your farm. Yeah. So we just kind of try to look to how these animals behaved in nature and what their benefits were to nature. So, you know, if you have pigs in one area, lots of poop and with their long, powerful snouts, like very destructive, they'll make a lake for themselves. But if you look at them as sort of like nature's rototillers and use them appropriately and move them constantly, then, you know, they're not a nuisance. They don't have to be kept on concrete to keep them from digging to China. So, you know, so we're sort of like pigs root, chicken scratch, cattle graze, goats browse slash graze. And all of them have positive effects to the ecosystem and the soil when you're managing them in that way. So during the grazing season, we're moving the cattle and the goats pretty much every day to a new grid because we want them in a small enough area that they're going to eat, you know, eat everything more evenly. They have a sense of competition with each other. So then, you know, they're eating their favorite plants and their less favorite plants. And then that helps keep all of the pasture in what we call like the blaze of growth, like the teenage blaze of growth. So the plants will kind of draw down more carbon and keep growing fast if they're not like way down to the ground where they're back like an infancy or if they're not let to grow and put out seed heads and get into their like reproductive phase. And that's why even though the goats are maddening sometimes, we've kept them as we've gotten in, we've like gotten the pasture to a better quality to actually be able to graze cattle. Whereas we weren't, when we got the land, it was like very depleted soil and just lots of shrubby blackberry and goldenrod and stuff that wasn't really to the quality that cattle would eat. But unlike sheep and goats, cattle and goats are dead and hosts for each other's parasites. So the other reason we move them constantly in addition to you know, managing the forage and the soil is to stay ahead of parasites. So if they're not, if you're resting the land long enough, you don't typically have to rely on pharmaceutical warmers and stuff as much because you're breaking the hatch cycle of those intestinal parasites. But in the peak of summer where everything is growing so fast, your rest period might mean that then everything is super tall and you would really like to regraze it, but you don't want to because of the parasite thing. So being able to tag team the goats and cattle is really great because they do eat like slightly different stuff. The goats are going to want the more brushy things and the cattle want more grassy things. But when it's all lush and beautiful in the summer, they're going to mow it down like pretty well. <laughs> so that's going to do with the grazers. And then half our acreage is wooded. So we've used that a lot for the pigs to till in this kind of like soil layer that hasn't really been touched in a while. And then we're working towards using them so that we can also graze all of the wooded part as silver pasture 
two, so kind of like double our grazing acreage. And then the chickens follow ruminants or birds often follow ruminants in nature and they kind of scratch through the cow patties and eat the larvae. So they keep the fly population down for the cattle, which is great. And their manure is kind of more potent as a fertilizer than a ruminant manure because of fours and they're eating bugs and stuff too. So they are like the scratcher, the bug killer, and the fertilizer. The funny thing is we have more chickens than any other species, of course. And yet because we move their mobile egg mobiles with the bobcat and we have such a wet climate, we only move them every four to seven days. And then if it's raining, 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 we don't really want to like rut up the whole pasture. So even when we're moving them as regularly as we want to, the ruminants are constantly lapping them. So they're generally behind, you know, the ruminants in some way and they're scratching through cow patties, but not always like directly behind them. And then in terms of soil beyond that, because we're such composting nerds, I mean, we're always just paying such attention to like what's happening in the soil. And we also have a, a red wiggler operation, those worms that I bought from Grant when I first met him, which are your classic composting worms. So we produce soil at the farm to sell through the garden store. And that includes live worms for people's compost and screened worm castings as like a soil amendment. So given how thrilled we are about worms, like when we first started seeing worm castings in the cow patties, like, oh, like there's native earthworms that are like finally here after, you know, two years of doing all of this work and rotating them constantly and adding organic matter. That was pretty exciting. And dung beetles too, like get very excited about those like nature's decomposers showing back up. So it's really like a closed, you know, like a just a positive reinforcement sort of cycle of like the more you're moving the animals, the more manure, the more hoof activity, the more they're knocking down dead stuff, adding that to sort of like the natural mulch layer, the more organic matter than that the soil microbes can draw down and eat, like the better it gets and the better the forage gets. So then the healthier the animals. And it's really super cool to see. That's very cool. You guys have like the best team ever between you and Grant and all of the critters on the farm. You guys just work <laughs> yeah. so well together. Yeah. yeah. And one thing we have learned a lot from Polyface Farm, Joel Salton has a lot of books, but we also visited and had Daniel, the son down for some seminars on the farm. And then there's another farmer. It's J&L Green Farm. He has this Facebook page called Farm Builder. And he has like pasture port classes that we've, that Grant went to. So some like just really cool little tricks, like we've learned from them, like using the pigs as cedars to stomp it in. So like, we'll have them in an area, we'll have them kind of rooted all up in the woods. And then two days before we move them, we'll spread Raw, um, whole corn everywhere because they love to eat that. That's like a treat. And then also cover crop seeds. So it's different, you know, if it's a winter cover crop mix or spring or summer. And because that we've spread out the corn so they're rooting in every little bit of paddock, like otherwise they might, you know, just be a little lazier. Then their hoofs are hitting every spot where we've also spread the seed. So it, it tamps it down a bit so that it hits moisture and kind of germinates faster and more evenly. And then we'll graze the cattle and the goats on those crops once they come up, which is just super fun. It's like, well, thank you for doing the work. Like let, you know, and you were so happy doing it, little pigs, like, you know, so there's kind of nothing better in that sense. Absolutely. That is so cool. I love watching those videos. And I always, my husband, I'm like, look what they're doing. Look what these pigs are doing. <laughs> yeah, pigs kind of get a bad rap, but they just got to be managed well and they're the best ever. Yeah, absolutely. 
So, Kate, I would say that your method of raising livestock is not what I would call or most people would call conventional. So tell us more about the life cycle of your animals and how you guys handle them from birth to they're no good, very bad days. Yeah, they're very bad days. So I think the biggest part, and Grant and I, a lot of people don't realize this, Grant and I were both vegetarians for when we met. Like I was a vegetarian for five years and it was really more like I don't, now I want to be in touch with farmers and sort of know more about how they raise the animals. So it's not like I don't agree with eating meat ever. I just don't know where to source it that I like feel really confident about. So we just sort of feel like as long as we do everything to maximize their like pleasure and they're fulfilling their kind of purpose on earth. So letting pigs root, letting chickens scratch and fly and dust bathe, you know, and then making sure that their journey to the end and just all of that is like as stress-free as possible that there's, you know, I have no problem eating meat now, certainly. And I, you know, raise these animals from birth. Like, so it can be hard for people to understand, but, but to me, it just puts you in touch so much more with your own mortality and just the cycle of life and death that we're all a part of, whether we want to reckon with that or not. So it is hard. And in some ways, harvesting, like sending grant drives them to our slaughterhouse butchers. There's no like mobile processing unit legal in Louisiana. So they do have to be transported. But what we do is try to make them comfortable with the trailer their whole life. So feed them in there. And then especially like the days before they're about to go, we feed them in there every day so that they're used to jumping in there. And our butchers, both of our butchers have actually told us on more than one occasion that we have like the best behaved animals, which says to me, like they're not stressed and freaking out while they're there. So I feel like that tells me that we've done our job in that way. And a lot of people don't realize like with the small butchers that we use, like we're pretty limited on who we can use because there's been so much vertical integration in large scale farming of a company that owns every step of the process, including like the slaughterhouse. So when they get there, it's not like they're on a conveyor belt, you know, and then like bullet in the head or anything. They actually stay overnight, at least a night, sometimes two, because they want them to be calm from their journey. And one of my butchers even told me, like, he'll always be like, were those your animals? They were so cute. And I was giving him belly rubs and I like to make their last day really good. And I'm like, yeah, I'm crying at the butcher now. Like, thank you so much. So that's, so it's both like that they have like a sort of similar to humans, like that you have a purpose in life. Like, you know, maybe the length of your life isn't as important as if you really like had a meaningful life. And while I don't think they have the same cognition as we do, if they're just behaving as their species should, like, I think that's good. And then minimizing any pain or stress or suffering. And then, yeah. And then we're really proud to be able to provide that for people. Cause that's what I wanted as a customer. And, you know, the reason that we're doing what we do is because like, there weren't as many people to choose from to be our farmer. So we just decided to be our farmers. <laughs> so Kate, I am officially misty over here. You telling this story, misty? Exactly. It is. Oh. Yeah. The way yeah, that you no. guys handle your animals is honestly, I just admire you guys so much. It is extra work. It totally is, but it's so worth it. And like you said, for the butcher to be like these animals are at peace, like yeah. that is the biggest compliment. 
I think so. And honestly, the other thing I feel it's kind of opposite, but I feel like I'm getting more emotionally invested as we go on, not less. Like you would think maybe you get a little jaded, but I think what it is, is realizing like, it is okay to mourn them. Like they deserve that. Like I don't have to shake it off and be tough. Like I should have a moment or a day or a week, you know, and it doesn't mean that we're not going to enjoy the meat and be really proud to sell it to our dear customers. It's just like, there's more depth to it. There's a lot going on, you know, and it's okay. Like, it's like, I miss them, but they lived a good life. And the alternative to me, like, I don't really feel like not eating meat is really an option. Cause I do know that there's not really a way to escape animals dying in even for plant-based food. And that's like a whole separate topic, but just, you know, ancillary death and, and stuff. And so to me, it's just more honest and it's not for everyone. Like, it's okay if you don't think you could do it, but you know, I'm happy to do it for you. Cause like, it's like almost like feeling more emotion, like makes you more alive. Like, so even though it's sad emotion, it's like, it's all right. Like, I think I want that. I'd rather be more like in touch and connected than try to push it away. So that is what I have learned in, I guess, three or four years of butchering them. (laughs) So (laughs) that quote that you just said, like, feeling more emotion makes you feel more alive. Like that is like a quotable quote of the episode, Kate. (laughs) I absolutely agree with you. And you have been such a good friend to me when I have had my animals leave the farm and either they're going to a new farm or they're no good, very bad day. And you have been a great support for me. So I I want to thank you for that. Not a lot of people know. Yeah. Not a lot of people get it. And some people, even well-meaning people, like will say things like, I could never do that. I don't know how you do it. And it's like, could you just have a little more respect in your tone than like shock, you know? Absolutely. Uh, Because it is hard, but it's like, no, in a way, like not to toot your own horn too much, but it's like, like, there's not really a way to escape it. So if you want to be a person who faces it and deals with it, then fine, (laughs) you know? So yes, well, you're a first generation farmer. I definitely am a first generation farmer. So I get that all the time. Like, I don't know how you do that. Or why do you do this to yourself and all of this (laughs) stuff? But I would rather have these animals and care and respect for them the way that I want to and give them the best life they can. Because either way, this is where they're going to end up. So I would like to be a part of their happy life. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And sometimes when I get vegans attacking me on Instagram, which has kind of lessened a bit recently, I kind of love it. Like I'm happy to, it's like, oh, you think I haven't thought about this? And like, just wait for it. Like I have a very, you know, detailed response for you, but it's how they live. Like, don't we care more about how they live than like the fact that they die? Because the fact that they die is inescapable, you know, and it's true for all of us, you know? So yeah, the life is the important part to me and that the death is done humanely and with care and respect and dignity. So absolutely. We live on big spreads and tiny homesteads, farms, ranches, and everywhere in between. Neighbors separated by barbed wire fences and gravel roads divided by section lines and field boundaries. We are wives and mothers, husbands and fathers, producers and consumers held together by the threads of history and love. Here in these vast, wide-open places, we answer the call of caregivers to the land, the animals, and our families with open hearts and willing hands. The miles of gravel and pavement between our homes can make the isolation of rural life feel insurmountable. Sometimes we struggle to reach out and ask for help, even though we never pause when one of our own needs our support. We come together in times of crisis and in times of joy. We celebrate together when the markets are up, 
and hold each other together when the world falls apart. We support each other's families from the sidelines and in the trenches. We show up for each other, operating equipment, working cattle, cooking meals, and offering a shoulder to cry on when there's nothing else we can do. We may get knocked down, but together we get back up and carry on. We are fighters who never back down from a challenge or allow obstacles to stop us in our tracks. When the going gets tough, we rally. We rise from the ashes of heartbreak because this life is in our blood and it is part of our soul. Though we are proud of our independence and our strength, we know that together we can overcome challenges we can't handle alone. Introducing Rally, a charitable campaign aiming to bring agriculture together. The agricultural industry is like no other. Farmers and ranchers are truly the eternal optimists. We work against the clock and the elements on a daily basis. We stand alone in our fields and come together in need. The Rally campaign was built for this purpose, to stand together and to support one another. We are the faces of agriculture, no matter the size of our operations. We stand united whether we're conventional or organic, grass or grain finished, big egg or small farm. We're all in this together. The Rally Campaign is a fundraising effort to provide funds for selected agricultural organizations. From now until the end of March 2020, funds raised through the Rally Campaign will be donated to the Do More Agricultural Foundation, who is a not-for-profit organization focused on mental health in agriculture across Canada, and the Agri-Ability Project, whose mission is to enhance the quality of life for farmers, ranchers, and other agricultural workers with disabilities so they, their families, and their communities can continue to succeed in rural America. Purchase your Rally Campaign t-shirt over at Shop Wildrose Farmer, with $4 of the proceeds being equally split between these two worthy organizations. For more information about the Rally Campaign, head on over to wildrosefarmer.com slash rally. So the last point of your Instagram bio is growing food locally. So you mentioned yeah. before that the market for farm to table was a little bit lacking in your area. But now has it improved since you guys have started or has it kind of yeah, changed? It- it has. Um, and one thing we've done is just sort of forged our own path in the sales part of it. The farmer's market culture is a little strange here to me, at least growing up with this huge farmer's market in Wisconsin. So, and then we also, our situation, of course, and how we were going to approach sales was just different too, because we already had the retail store in a metro area. So we had to be like, oh, we have this like use your unfair advantage, right? Like the store that we've already, you know, paid taxes on for years and have all this like overhead investment in is in an area that's way more highly populated than our farm, of course. So we hardly sell anything direct from our farm. We sell soil and, you know, live pigs to people and, you know, eggs here and there and stuff like that. But our butchers, one of the butchers can deliver the finished meat back to the store because they come into New Orleans weekly with their freezer truck. And then, we have staff with dead time there. So that led to kind of bringing eggs there to be washed and packed instead of doing it farm. And then we developed this delivery hub model where like New Orleans to people 15 minutes is far. So we're in the suburbs and we're really not that far from some neighborhoods that would like to buy a lot from us. But we are like, if you're coming out at the end of the day after work, we are in like the traffic flow, you know, we're like off an exit that is rush hour. So 
if you, I've learned that if you come to the New Orleanians in their neighborhood, like they will buy a lot more than just being like, Hey, we're here out in, in Metairie, which is the suburb. So, so a couple of things, like kind of like, there was like a confluence of a couple of things. We were kind of like, okay, we have eggs and pork. At that point, we didn't really have any sausage labels done. We have to get them approved by Department of Ag when you add additional ingredients. So we had like plain unseasoned pork, like pork chops and roasts and eggs. And we're like, maybe we'll sell more of this stuff if we also have vegetables to go with it. So we started buying from another local vegetable farm. And then offering it at the store, but then also doing like a neighborhood delivery hub model where we put out a pre-order form to that specific neighborhood. They have a couple days to pre-order and then they come pick up in a two-hour time window like in their neighborhood at it's either a yoga studio or a brewery or a business incubator, stuff like that. And then that kind of snowballed. And as much as I love the animals, I also really love people and dealing with our customers and not all farmers like want to do that. And I totally do. And I think that selling food to people is kind of sacred. It's like very special that people are nourishing their families with it. So I love that aspect of my day-to-day just as much as the animals. So that whole thing has just kind of continued to grow. So now besides our work, which we have a bunch of sausages and bacon and a lot more variety now than we did at the beginning, we also have our own beef certain times of the year and goat meat. We buy dairy, chicken, since we're not doing meat, chickens, lamb sometimes in the year, and then produce from three, four different other farms, fermented vegetables, jams with local fruit, bread. And so it's become this whole like array of grocery offerings. And we found like we certainly make a margin off of it. Like with produce, we don't sell any meat wholesale because we have the customer base to sell it all at the maximum retail dollar. But with produce, you don't have six months vacuum sealed in the freezer. Like, so even farms that are small scale, like we are, have an incentive to sell produce wholesale. It's got to move it. So they have their direct markets that they sell to and then restaurants and places like us. So yeah, so that's super fun. And that's what I do day to day, pretty much. Like I'll try to peek at the animals and check on them, but I manage our store and then go out and do these delivery hubs Monday through Thursday afternoon, evening, and see all my awesome Um, customers and tell them what to cook with all their delicious food. (laughs) That is so so cool. I love it. Yeah, I do. Like I, I like miss the animals and I don't hardly do chores ever. We grant and then our farmhand and we have like a high school intern on the weekends, but like I'm very social and the customers fill my bucket a lot too. And they're like, I mean, people that have been buying from us since the beginning, I just like, I get weepy around them sometimes because I'm like, you've just been supporting us. And I know they're getting good product, but it's still like, it's not normal. Like they're not like going to the grocery store. Like they kind of have to go out of their way to like get the order form. And, you know, so I really recognize that and really love them all. (laughs) Yes, for sure. And I would be remiss not to ask about the goat meat. Is there a big market for yeah. goat meat in your area. Believe it or not. So yeah, so goat meat is the most eaten meat in the world, just not in North America. So you sort of find like the more, you know, so South America, Africa, Asia, Middle East, like lots of goat. So yeah, we have no problem selling it. I mean, we never have enough. Like last year, in fact, it's kind of a good problem to have, but our does had a lot more female kids and we usually keep back the females to at least give them one shot to see if they're a good mom, you know, set me up to like year and a half, two years before they kid for the first time. So yes, we didn't have as, as many males and we haven't processed in a while. We're getting ready to bring a crew in 
probably later this month, but yeah. And even people, so there's certainly a demand of people that are looking for it because it's so hard to find, but even just our regular customer base, like if they've had lamb, oh yeah, I'll try goat too, you know, cause the, the chops and things that you would cook in a similar way. And, um, yeah, and it's becoming like a little more popular at like trendy restaurants and stuff too. So I think like that's putting it in people's minds of like, oh, I could try cooking that. So it's like, we, we don't have a very big herd. We have, I guess it's the count's like 32 right now, including some yearlings that are getting ready to be processed. It's probably like about 20 does, you know, so, but it's really, it's, so it's really more for the maintenance. And like I was explaining about the dead end hosts for each other's parasites. And it's like nice to have them in addition to the cattle to graze. We certainly sell way more beef, but yeah, we're able to sell. We've had no problem selling it, which is fascinating to me. It is um, fascinating to me too, because it is <laughs> definitely not a well-known meat no. option around my area. We're definitely Alberta beef people. So yeah, yeah. when I tell people- and it's like, yeah. Like venison, like I, I try to compare it to people, like, and people in Louisiana are very adventurous and there's a big hunting culture and stuff. So I think there's some people that just think it's similar. I mean, it's not the same. It doesn't have the same flavor profile, but it's almost like a mashup to me of like venison and lamb and maybe beef a little in there too. <laughs> so yeah, but I'm sure, yes, you get a lot of like weird, weird looks and uh, confusion with goat. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And well, so many people are like, oh, they're dairy goats, right? And I'm like, no, there is such a thing as meat goats. Their udders are like a third or quarter of the size of like a dairy goat. You know, they couldn't provide milk beyond their kid if they tried. So yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Okay. It has been so wonderful talking to you. I am so happy that I was able to have you on the podcast here. And I'm sure that Thank I you. have a majority of people either fangirling or fanguiling over <laughs> you right now. But my last Aww. question for you is what is the most rewarding part for you about being a farmer? I think it's really some of the stuff we've already hit on of just like being able to give the animals a good life. And I guess something I haven't talked about is, I mean, I really, really love food and I really love to cook. So having great ingredients at my fingertips that I feel good about is awesome too. So, and the customers, it's really like, and I guess the easiest way to describe it is it's really hard and I work all the time, but compared to when I was working nine to five at an office job where I'm like just summoning like any level of motivation to keep going, like, I just feel there is something just great about, you know, having no, like waking up in the morning and just being excited to get after it. Like I do not have to summon motivation anymore. I don't have to have a gym membership because I'm really active, like moving around. So I just feel like it's the right existence for me. Like I, I'm in touch with like the best version of myself in this farming life of mine. So I love it. I missed you again. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. It was so fun. It's so fun. So for the listeners yeah. who would like to be in contact with you after the show, where can they find you? So we, our farm account on Instagram is local cool at local cooling farms. And then we keep a separate account for Laffy nursery with gardening tips and then all the food we have available. I've noticed there's like cognitive dissonance with like cute animals and then like a spread of food. So just visually, I like to keep that separate. And we like, since we buy from 12 other farms now, I try to keep the brand umbrella brand as Laughing Buddha Nursery. So social media, Facebook or Instagram, it's at Local Cooling Farms and at Laughing Buddha Nursery. And then our website is laughingbuddhanursery.com. And there's like a farm subsection of that with more stuff about us. 
Awesome. And I will put those links in the show notes so people can find you and connect with you after the show. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Caitlin. Thanks for listening to the Rural Woman Podcast. For show notes, head on over to wildrosefarmer.com. You can stay connected with me on Instagram at wildrosefarmer. If you love the show, make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Plus, share it with a friend. We'll see you next time.